Hello and welcome to EG's brand new politics podcast, Office Politics, with me, Piers Weiner. About once a month, we will be looking at the place where politics and property intersect, the sprawling edifice that lies somewhere between the sunlit uplands and the dark corridors of power. We'll examine the potential impact of what the government and opposition are planning, dissecting the policies, discussing delivery and giving you all the gossip and insight that we can. And from the start of this new administration, I will be joined by my coalition partner, former Conservative MP and indeed former Housing Minister, Mark Prisk. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. Uh, and I say, on that description of the great journey, I feel like Gandalf uh, at this point. <laughs> I, I, I was talking to a friend of mine and he said that um, you can you can roughly map uh, housing ministers onto um, in- reincarnations of uh, of Doctor Who. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I have I have often said that, you know, you should never have two housing ministers in the same room at the same time because that could create a, you know, a vortex in the in the. So east. it must be true. It must be true. <laughs> I did, after yeah. he said this, I had to look I had to look at it and, and it does. It, it sort of it works that it roughly it means that you're roughly Patrick Troughton. So that's uh, I mean, that's not oh, bad, nice. is it? Oh, yeah. I happen to be Patrick Troughton. Yes, I'll, I'll get the waistcoat and. Now, I, I can't decide, Mark. Is, is this either the best week ever to start a new politics podcast or the worst week ever? I'm, I'm in two minds. Oh, I think it's the best. I mean, that's that said by an ex-politician. And as you know, we all crave uh, attention. So that's the one, one of the great dangers. But no, I think it's the best because there's a lot going on. We don't know the outcome. And therefore, we might just hope that listeners may tune in again next week. The thing is, we're not going to run out of things to talk about, are we? Because it has been... An extraordinary week. I mean, the old adage of a week is a long time in politics. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. I mean, it has been. The, the, there's been a long cry, not least since the pandemic, that when people are just waiting for normality to return. And I just kind of feel that you might be sitting at the bus stop for a quite a long time. A lot of events have changed and you often get you get a period of quietness and then suddenly you get a period of major changes, uh, whether it's the sad passing of Her Majesty the Queen, whether it's the war in Ukraine, you know, a war back on the mainland of Europe, all the energy knock on implications for that. Uh, and indeed the restructuring to the economies, the fragility in, in, in British politics. You know, there's a whole raft of underlying things. And then they up, up, up from that pop a whole, a whole string of different symptoms and so on. So, um, no, I think it's a fascinating time. I think that that idea of the the huge macro picture. I mean, on on the morning we're, we're recording this on a Thursday. I mean, this is uh, just to, just to say because everything could change yes. <laughs> by the time this goes out. But uh, this morning we've had um, we've had government ministers saying that, that what's going on in the markets, for example, is is because of macro forces. It's because of it's because of Putin. We've had Liz Truss saying that. Um, that she's made the right choices, that she's going to stick to that. I mean, that, that thing about operating within a huge macro picture yes. is quite important, isn't it? But within that, there well, are lots of other things that are going on, aren't there? Yes. I mean, the old Christine Keeler argument about they would say that, wouldn't they, uh, <laughs> is it comes to my mind. And I kind of feel sorry for the junior minister that gets uh, pushed out through the door to try and answer the, the screaming hordes in, in in the media about what's going on. And some of the questions were slightly of the nature of, you know, when did you stop beating your wife? <laughs> and you, yeah, it is very difficult in those circumstances to have a rational debate. The truth is there are some big fundamentals that all economies are being affected by, principally the war in Ukraine and therefore the knock-on implications for both the supply and the price of energy. 
and as we know energy underlines almost every other cost so so that is true all of that is correct but clearly the sudden crisis in the last week or so has stemmed from the market's feeling that a they're not sure what the government's going to do and be a fundamental tension you've got on the one mm. hand you know monetary policy that is is stated as being about dealing with inflation and therefore driving out inflationary forces and on the other hand you've got a government wanting to rapidly grow the economy and it's a bit like trying to someone said to me recently it's a bit like trying to drive a car when you've got your foot your left foot firmly on the brake and your right foot firmly on the accelerator There'll be a lot of noise, but you're not going to go anywhere. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. And, and what the markets are trying to work out now is, so how does this end? And they hate, quite understandably, because they're trying to make big investment decisions. They hate not being able to see the path ahead. <clears throat> to say that it's not nothing to do with what happened on Friday and indeed his subsequent remarks on Sunday I think is unwise because let's be honest, it's a bit like those moments they used, like the Blair government, when they got into trouble, they used to push one or two junior ministers out who would tell us that in fact everything was fine and you know, just, just don't look here. And you know when the junior minister has been shoveled out to do that, that, that things are actually quite serious. I think that's that's a really good point, isn't it? This idea of monetary policy and, and fiscal policy working and sort of working at odds. We've had um, the former governor of the Bank of England, uh, Mark Carney, saying that what the government is doing is undermining the bank's attempts to fight inflation. I mean, that's that's a big criticism to level, isn't it? Yes, it is. And I, I mean, I think there's a reasonable suggest, comment, which is, did the Bank of England get a grip of inflation early enough? Yeah. If we look back, and my view would be it didn't, um, for whatever reason. So it's come into the game slightly late. Rightly, it doesn't want to press the brake hard. But because we've now had the various fiscal interventions and the market spooked, it's going to have to push that brake harder than it mm. intended to. But of course, in a way now, it's reversed its decision just of a week ago over QE, and it's now actually looking to buy in gilts. What this has done is it's actually created a tension within the bank's own policy. And of course, the markets hate all of this. Investors hate all of this. Lenders hate all of this. Mm. Because, you know, what they're being asked to do is to make a decision and stick with it financially for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. So they need some kind of clarity. So I think my worry is that you'll get um, a hiatus in the short term, particularly in the, in the mortgage market. Well, and we're seeing that, aren't we, that they, they're yeah, pulling products. Exactly. And also the, with that hiatus there, you've then got on the commercial side, I mean, the REITs have lost two and a half billion pounds worth of value since yeah. since Friday. That kind of uncertainty and that kind of, of drag on everything, thats it's really damaging stuff, isn't it? Yes. I mean, there are other factors that were swirling around anyway. We knew beforehand because the bank had anticipated that we would either be already in a, a, a small recession or yeah. into one. So we kind of all knew that. I think this has just made things worse. And sentiment and confidence are those so they're like will of the wisp. They're very difficult to define, but you know when they've changed. And uh, you you know confidence, particularly in economics. I mean, let's be honest. Most people, and I include myself in this, are not great financial whiz kids. So we kind of take the view that the people who are taking the big decisions, we need to have confidence in them that they seem to know what they're doing. We may not agree with them all the time. 
But if they're solid, it's a bit like the old thing that uh, a good chancellor used to be like a slightly dull bank manager. You know, he was never going to be the, the 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 life of the party, but you actually don't want him to be because it's your money <laughs> he's yeah. messing around with, and therefore you want something solid and so on. There's still an element of truth in that. You want assurance, you want comfort, you want confidence that actually they've got a plan and they seem pretty competent. But I think at the moment, if you were sort of planning but hadn't made an offer yet on a property um would you be looking to take anything out of the next next few months mm-hmm. i think you just wait you push it so the danger is you make what would be a gentle downturn uh, something sharper we'll see i mean i suspect last friday some people will have looked at the budget and thought oh whoopee uh, i'm just about to buy my stamp duty's gone down hallelujah and then by Monday evening, they're thinking, crikey, actually, my mortgage costs are going to ratchet up. You know, can I still afford this if if interest rates, base rate goes up to five, six percent? That that sort of drives to the heart, doesn't it, of of this sort of almost almost split personality within that budget. That on the one hand, you've got you've got a lot of takeaways that people will be thinking, okay, great, that helps me, that helps my business. That um, you know, the, there's a lot of those the the tax giveaways or the incentives or the uh, the the business focused policies. Uh, we'll talk about investment zones in a minute and things like that. But but at the back of that is the fact that it's all based on borrowing, and that to me seems like a real clash of cultures almost. Is that is that fair? I mean, you've you've, you've been in this game, and I'm just an observer. So yeah, no, no, no. I think you. I share those instincts, which is I mean, I'm a sound money kind of person. So my view is, if you get your ducks in a row, that's the, at that point you can then make the decisions about how you use that money, whether you spend it more on public services or give it back to the public or a bit of both. Yeah. But you, your money is solid first of all because governments don't have any money they raise it through taxes borrowing is just deferred taxes because one always has to sort of remind yourself i always felt that i wouldn't go too far wrong if i remembered it was other people's money i was spending when i was a minister i agree with you and i think you you saw that during the leadership test clearly a number of people and i voted for rishi sunak felt that on balance um he was right in wanting to make sure we got the finances solid and stable, and then we could do things. And Liz Truss felt, no, the priority was that actually, um, if you look at other countries, their indebtedness is higher than ours, and they're still doing things. Yeah. So why can't we Why can't we borrow more? So, you know, one is a more cautious approach. One is a more uh, uh, aggressive approach in terms of, of public finances. But this goes back to your bank manager, doesn't it, that we've got... Whereas Rishi was, despite his flashy suits, he was he was the rather more staid and restrained bank manager type. Whereas with Liz Truss, you've got somebody who she's proud of, of taking risks, isn't she? That's that's her reputation that she. Well, that's right. It's interesting, isn't it? So she's somebody who has uh, been prepared to take bold, bold decisions. Um, and I recognise that I thought actually as Secretary of State for International Trade, you know, under Boris, she, I thought she knuckled down and she did some really good stuff mm-hmm. and she just cracked on with it but yeah it's i guess it's a perception isn't it i think also we shouldn't ignore the key one of the key factors here and that is time she doesn't have much time she has to find a way in really the next 12 months of being able to show that um that actually the right decisions have been made and with the the you know the tanker is turning in the right direction because it usually takes another six months then for people to feel that either in yeah. their pay packet or looking at it in, you know, in terms of their house price or whatever it is that people judge 
whether they're better off or worse off. I mean, it was the old thing. I think it was Ronald Reagan did back in the 80s with Carter, which was his mantra was always, are you better off under the current guy or not? And if you're not, uh, this is what I can do for you. So knowing that if people felt content, the chances were they'd stick with the incumbent. Um, So Liz Truss's administration only really has until I would say this time next year, i.e. next autumn, for people to be able to see positive numbers and then start to feel that actually, yes, we've had an energy crisis. Yes, there was a difficult winter in 22-3, but actually we're beginning to turn the corner uh, investments coming, taxes coming down. I'm feeling a bit better. Maybe she was right. She stuck to her guns. I mean, that's the positive uh, prospect, um, you know, it, which just at the moment feels rather slim. Well, and that's the bit they, they keep pivoting back to, don't they? The um, the uh, energy cap that they're, they're yeah. introducing, which which is going to touch everybody, as opposed to the things that I think, for example, the IMF has criticised, which is getting rid of the top rate of taxation. Yeah. Um, the, the, the ones that seem actually to be helping the better off as opposed to the worse off. But it's it's all about, isn't it, that this mini budget is all about that quest for growth. And it's all about that that sort of sharp lift, which isn't happening now. Mm. Can it happen at all? I mean, is the best that we can hope for a sort of Anthony Barbaresque sugar rush that, um, you know, which was done for similar reasons, wasn't it? That was a 1972 yeah. budget looking at a 1974 election. Yeah, I think take take a step back. The big context here is that is still that we decided to leave uh, the European Union. So you've got to decide how then is the UK in the middle, medium and longer term going to compete no longer a member of the single European market? Because we've been in that for 40 years. I, I think most conservatives would broadly agree with some of the principles here. But what Liz Truss is arguing is, well, if we're going to do it, we've got to make ourselves tax competitive. So uh, successful people, entrepreneurs, uh, financiers want to be here, they want to invest here, um, they, they see it as a positive environment. So how do you do that? Uh, you make yourself financially more attractive, you make it easier to do business, make money than mm-hmm. it is in the European Union. I think, you know, she is looking to make sure that certain things like life sciences uh, are invested in, skills reform, planning system, to make sure that actually those areas that are busting to grow uh, can actually do so, uh, you know, effectively and viably. Um, I mean, there's a shortage, for example, as we know, of um, lab facilities. Uh, and so how do you how do you get that up and running? So I think the sort of what the direction she's trying to go in is to say, right, I've got a short period in which I need to um, overcome the energy crisis, but I also need to put down some foundations for uh, an economy outside of the European Union. And I've got to, you know, and we we haven't got much time, so I kind of need to hit the accelerator now. And I think the problem there is not looking at the interplay between monetary and fiscal policy and how one often unintentionally affects the other. It's a little bit like taxes. I mean, I, it always used to be so taxes like wrestling with jelly in the sense that whatever you did as a government, people, because they resent, in truth, they often resent paying taxes, um, uh, they'll, they'll go to quite some extraordinary lengths to work their way around. Them. So the trick is to have a tax that is simple, low, easy to collect, almost no exclusions. So simple, flat and low. And then actually there's no incentive to make any difference. And because it's very wide, 
across a tax base, you, you, you bring in a good level of revenue and people think, well, you know, actually the time and effort to avoid or to evade, uh, depending on your sense of criminality, um, you know, is, is, is just not worth it and I might as well stick with it. I think there's some very good arguments around making the economy fit outside of the single market. The question I think is pace and communication. Do you think in that um, in, within that picture of low taxation and um, allowing people to get on with doing things, you know, getting government out of the way, which is very much a, a, a trust mantra, um, that things like investment zones, as they were unveiled in the budget, that that will have that impact? And I, I'm I'm that ancient that I can remember the enterprise zones and yeah. the urban development corporations of the 80s, which Michael Heseltine brought in. And I was a big fan. And I think... The investment zones will work if they do what um, we had with uh, UDCs and enterprise zones, which is on the one hand, you would create the incentives you make that location attractive to invest in. So that's about rules and it's about costs. But you also, on the other hand, you need strong civic leadership in that locality for the private sector to yeah. partner with. You know, I, I work with a brilliant, a visionary man who was the first chief executive of the London Docklands Development Corporation, Reg Ward. And Reg was brilliant because what he was able to do was to very simply define what it was he was trying to achieve, but also recognize that the private sector could bring talents and, uh, and obviously investment, but he couldn't. So he needed to be a good partner. And you've seen it more recently in things like uh, Howard Bernstein in Manchester, yeah. uh, Andy Street is another very good example of this in the Midlands, um, which is a really good, strong civic leader who's got a clear sense of purpose. They've got the tools in terms of planning reform, financial in, uh, incentives and so on. And they've got a good plan for what needs to happen in that locality. Then you'll get action. And I think that's why the government's going to be quite careful not to try and have 48 of these. Um, they probably are only going to really have 25, 30, and they yeah. should look good civic leadership. But, you know, I talk to developers, investors all the time, and it's something I do in terms of my executive coaching, which is help strengthen the caliber of civic leaders on the public side. So when the private sector comes to an area and says, we'd like to invest, they've got a, a sensible, mature, capable partner on the other side who says, great, here's the plan. We need this. We operate at the speed. We, you know, we know what we're doing. We're, we're, you know, we're, we're open for business and we're ready to do business. But is that not happening in those places anyway, where there's that that good combination of, of, of great leadership and opportunity? Um, do we need these places? Uh, it's 38, I think, isn't it? Is it 38? I thought it was 48. Well, I think it's 48 local authorities they're talking to. And then there's like 20 something. And they, they mentioned 20 sites or something. Yeah. So I, I, it was a little bit, yes, it felt like they needed a long appendix. And you know, <laughs> what can we put in? Oh, I know we've got 48. We'll put, stick a, put a list of 48 names in. Some nice big uh, lists. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that always, always, always does well. Some maps would be nice. But that's because yeah. that, I'm a cartophile, so I love a good map. But, well, the, um, the map's been the problem with this, though, hasn't it? Because somebody's done a map of those those areas, and obviously the, the, they're talking about things like Greater Manchester, Greater London, the whole yeah. of Norfolk. So yeah. somebody's done a map of where these things might be, and it covers the whole of England. Yes. Um, exactly. And then I, I think the RSPB then got annoyed because they, they put in where the bird sanctuaries were within there, and said, well, obviously oh. these will be bulldozed. Um, yes. But that's not the point, is it? They are going to be more targeted than yeah. that. 
I mean, they only work if they're very defined, if they are naturally defendable in the sense that they are a clear area, which because of the dangers, if you're going to create incentives between being in the zone and out of it, there needs to be a very clear border. You know? mm. I think that's quite important. One thing they've got to decide, though, is, is this investing in areas that are struggling or is it, in, is it investing in areas that uh, would immediately, you know, uh, respond? Um, yeah. Because if you're in, as, investing in an area that's struggling, which is what the enterprise zones in the 80s were about in Liverpool and Sheffield and London and so on, in the East End of London, um, then y- it's going to take probably 10 years for the yeah. full, you know, impact um, and actually, one of the things that Reg Ward did really well um, was that from the day one when he set up, they put a clock up on the wall and it counted down. He had 10 years, enterprise zone, 10 year, and you're done. Doors are locked, we're out. And actually, if you have that kind of mission approach, it actually really galvanized. I mean, I'm sure, you know, listeners know this in their own work. If you've got a clear deadline, my golly, it focuses minds. If it's, well, we're here and we're settled and then it's year mm. two. You know, I think having deadlines makes a big difference. So I, I would want to see what the incentives they've talked about matched by strong civic leadership and clear deadlines. I think that they, they are talking about them being time limited, aren't they? That the, um, and, that and the... they need to, But it needs to be realistic. Three years isn't going to get where they need to be because that's just the nature of the beast. Doesn't mean there won't be some benefits that are visible. But the first year will probably be, if they're starting from scratch, then it will be planning it, getting the investors in, agreeing what the order of play is. You won't get on site for 18 months. And that's partly the challenge here. Again, if you think now from ministers' point of view, they need visible benefits uh, within 18 months. So I suspect the sites that will be chosen will be predominantly those that can deliver within something within 18 Mm -hmm. months. Uh, when thinking about which investment zones are likely to happen, that I suspect will be a good uh, way to filter them. Well, and some of these places have been talking about something like this for some time. I mean, it looks as though some some of the investment zones map fairly closely onto the free ports that have already been announced, others on, onto, onto other areas that, that already have some sort of mechanism in place. Yeah. It would be... Well, and that, and that reinforces my point. It's basically saying is, OK, these things have got run, up and running. How do we how do we you know, boost them? Is that do you think that there's quite a lot of in, in what we're seeing at the moment? There's quite a lot of, of rebadging things that are already there. I mean, are we is this leveling up 2.0 or it sometimes feels like there's a marked difference in approach. But I don't know whether that's just the, the language being used. I suspect it's less than it may appear. Mm. Um, all new administrations, all new ministers feel the need to distinguish themselves from their predecessors, even if they're from their own party, you know, because naturally, as it's human instinct, you want to be able to say, well, I've done this, I've achieved that, whatever. So, and, you know, that comes to the the, the danger then of the fact that we're on our fourth Conservative Prime Minister since 2010, um, which means you're on your fourth administration in that time, which means you're on your 700th uh, housing minister, or whatever. I said that with a degree of bitterness there, if you may notice. Uh, <laughs> but, um, that is the danger, because then what happens is, I mean, the truth is, it'll probably be much the same as an outcome. It may get rebadged and whatever, but they don't have the time. I mean, mm. they're going to look for the low hanging fruit because they, you know, that is the simple, whether it's right or it's wrong, that's the simple driver. And in fact, in, in terms of in terms of the, the language and the policies, it now seems as though 
leveling up which i remember you know, everybody was asking questions of what does that mean what is, what is it but now leveling up has so entered the political discourse that yeah. you've got labor essentially stealing the the tory clothes and saying i oh, don't know no, we're the party of leveling up yes, yes. Had, at, at the conference the, the, they were saying the, com- the conservatives have gone for a trickle down we're going to be all about leveling up and yeah. do you think are, are we at a point where even though it might look as though there are some completely radical policies out there and some um, a, a bit of a divergence that actually when it comes to the policies that matter to our listeners that matter to the industry yeah that actually there's there's quite a lot of agreement about what needs to happen maybe the the ways in which it happens will be, will differ i think there's a lot of truth in that i think um you know, I'm, we haven't seen the details of them yet, but just look, listening to the basic language now of Starmer and of Lisa Landy and so on and so forth, it's mm. wildly radically different. I mean, there are certain areas, and obviously there'll be some forms of investment or certain nature of some regulations, but the recognition that, for example, at the macro level, that, you know, Brexit is here and we jolly well need to make it work uh, from Starmer, you know, gives you a sense that actually there's a recognition that there's an awful lot already that needs to be dealt with, whether it's the social crisis, uh, sorting out the Northern Ireland Protocol, a war in Europe, restructuring the energy industry so that it's affordable, but also sustainable environmentally. I mean, that's enough to keep a government going for a good five years. So do you need to heap a whole raft of other things on? I think probably, although there may be one or two areas where ministers will want to focus, the reality is that the room for manoeuvre from this administration and indeed a potential Labour one, if that's what happens after the next election, won't be hugely radically different. There will be certain bits of it that may be, but I suspect um, reforming the leasehold, uh, improving renters' rights, um sorting out uh the quality of of building in terms of fire safety um some planning reform to make it more efficient and effective there'll always be this back and forth over the question of uh home ownership because and interestingly i thought it was quite interesting that actually starmer's language was around aspiration and so on yeah um, wanting to increase home ownership to 70 percent that was, that was yeah you know now okay they'll have a different approach in terms of what we call affordable and what we call social housing and how you define that but in the end if the if the if the uh, if the money is tight your room for maneuvers is limited it's going to be less radical i think it, yes the chances that we are suddenly going down a corbyn-esque kind of path thank goodness mm. is no longer there no it's 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 been demonstrably the other way hasn't it like um, yeah. the the focus on business rates i mean that seems like that's, that seems unimaginable from a, a previous Labour leader post-2010. Yes. That intention, I mean, do we think, when they try and rebadge themselves as the uh, as the party of sound money, as the party of business, is that something, do you, do you get the feeling that, that that's, being, that's being taken on board by business, that they are saying, yes, OK, I agree with that, I think that, that they are, or is the, the spectre of Corbyn going to take a bit longer to later rest? A political party always has to start, a new leader has to start, particularly if you're after uh, Jeremy Corbyn, your first job is to remove the negatives, the reasons why you lost the 2019 election so heavily. But he's also had to give people a sense that actually this is a a centre-left party that is listening, that is about the majority. Um, He also is wise enough to realise that, you know, the economy is going through this post-Brexit period. Therefore, 
there's enough uncertainty around. And mm. if we're ever going to get some of the things that a Labour Party might want in terms of social reform and so on, then we, we they need to get the economy into some kind of stable uh, situation as they see it. So um, I, I think business is always pragmatic, in my view. It will sit and listen to what the politicians yeah. say. Uh, it will judge what that means for their bottom line. It will also judge uh, the people they meet and whether they think they're A, capable, and B, whether there's a hidden agenda they haven't spotted. I remember when I, when I was in, and I, we talked about us being in coalition, but I, I was a business minister in the coalition government uh, uh, working under Vince Cable, who was the yeah. Secretary of State, as people will remember. Of course, I was the only uh, conservative business minister. Obviously, there was George Osborne and so on in the Treasury. Um, but when it came to party conference, for example, uh, I had 112 requests for meetings from business groups at the conference and their various lobbyists and so on and so forth, who were very keen, A, to get to know me, B, to understand where we were coming from, C, to obviously they would have a particular worry or concern or an idea, you know. So uh, there'll be a lot of that now. I would, I, I, I suspect many more businesses attended the Labour conference this week. Uh, this Apparently week. so, yeah. The, uh, the, the, what do they call it? The event hall, the... Um, yes, they'll have a the, sort of forum that was and, that was much bigger apparently yes i mean i remember doing all this in opposition in 2000 between 2005 and 2010 and it just, the, the more serious people thought you were uh, about possibly getting in the more people came you know it was a very very simple measure really yeah i i think business business will be what it always is which is on the whole pragmatic and also you've got um you've got the other news of of uh, sir nigel wilson um legal and generals ceo he's he was offered uh, a minister for industry. Was that right? Is it... For investment. So what, for investment, what, that's it. what tends to happen is government tends to, for inward investment, it looks for a senior capable business person outside of politics to come into the government by, by making them a member of the House of Lords. Uh, so Jerry Brimstone was doing it Thanks, before, yeah. and we've had a number of other people. In my day, it was Stephen Green, Lord Green, who became the uh, inward investment uh, and trade minister. Um, and I was interim trade minister in 2010 as well as business minister until Stephen stepped in. Yeah, I mean, I think um, Nigel's a very sensible guy, and I think he's do, he's doing a fantastic job at LNG. And I suspect he just felt it wasn't for him. I mean, I don't know. I I, I obviously I can't say what his motivations are. I can only observe it. But um, do you know, on balance, I think it was probably, as I would expect from Nigel, a very wise decision. Well, he said, you know, he said that he wants to spend more time focusing on the business that he's run for the last yeah. ten years instead of moving into uh, into a ministerial yeah. role. But it's, I mean, it's got to take it's got to take some some stones to to say no, I don't want the job, and also I don't want the peerage that comes with it. I mean, yes. that's, that... well, it depends how much you like ermine, you know. Uh, <laughs> I suspect just having the ermine was never going to be something. That, I mean, Nigel's a doer; he wants to get on, make 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 the world a better place, and I'm sure that's what he would be focused on. And on top of all that, so we've had we've had possibly the biggest, busiest week in politics in busy political weeks that that I can certainly remember. I mean, you you may feel differently about that actually. I mean, this we've got to go back to the fact that you were a housing minister. We've had a complete change in in government. We've had a complete change in in the the the, the personality lineup. We've got yet another housing minister, Lee Rowley. Um, but you've held this post, so. You, you know what his intro is going to be like. You know what it's going to be like for, for the, the new kid starting in the office. 
Mm. Yes, and it's interesting because Lee uh, was in the business department and had uh, involvement with the construction industry, which is the same as me. And now 10 years on, he's come to housing. I mean, I, I don't know him very well, but I do know that he's bright. He's a doer. Um, I think he, you know, he's a positive uh, kind of roll up your sleeves kind of person. And certainly a number of people who have been talking to him in the recent days are quite impressed. So, you know, mm. good luck to him is what I say. Those those meetings that you have, that, that's two way, isn't it? They're, they're taking your temperature and that thing about, you know, they're trying to spot if there's a hidden agenda. Um, but also it's the it, with you as well, isn't it? Or yeah. in your former role that you're wanting to see exactly what it is that they want, how you can deliver it, how you can. Yeah, it's very important. I mean, I think as a, when you're a minister, so just take that business role, but it's similar in housing in that sector. Um, it's very important that you reach out beyond the experts that are presented to you just mm. by civil service or just by your fellow politicians. And it's very, you know, I try, and, and it's also trying to make sure that you're thinking about not just the loud voices, but the voices that maybe make up the majority. So the smaller businesses who are maybe not as well organized. Um, and, you know, there are some people who are very, some people who are very pushy and very aggressive, which tends to make me back off a bit. Others who are good because what they'll do is they, they know your time is short, they'll keep it brief. It's very important for you as a minister to have those connections. Um, Ken Clark, when I was in opposition, Ken Clark was my, uh, my, my boss in the business role. So we were expecting at that point that Ken would then come into uh, the coalition, into the, a conservative government as the mm. business secretary uh, to George in, in, in Treasury. And that was felt to be a really good. And what Ken was brilliant at, because he'd been around the block a few times, and I was, by the time we got to the 2010 election, I was his number two. Ken was brilliant on the big picture and he just knew people at a senior level and he could if we came up with an idea or whatever and we're thinking would this fly he could speak to a couple of the key chief executives mm. somebody who understood how that particular regulation impacted outside of the sort of Westminster bubble and just get a sense of whether it smelt right you know you just you kind of know and that that is an invaluable experience. Um, and he was always also great fun to work with. Uh, you know, it was always always entertaining. And actually, we were a good combination because Ken was very good on the big picture, um, not quite so good on then driving forward and making it actually happen. And that was always my you know strength. Um, so he knew once we'd got to right, we think that's going to work. Now we've got to flesh the details out and so on um then i could take that away and get that sorted that's, um, that's where it hits your intro yeah yeah yes is, know, that, is that a problem that we've got currently because i mean we, we joke about the 700 housing minister and yes. um i think what matters you do need longevity ministers need i would say a good two years in a role because the yeah, first six to nine months you're bedding in you're getting to know who's in that sector that you're working with you're getting to understand the lie of the land. You're getting to understand the people who shout and scream may not necessarily have all the facts and actually the people whose advice actually works. Um, you're also getting to understand how your how the parliament, which MPs, you know, will love and love what you're doing and which ones will hate it and which ones need cuddling and which ones need throttling. Um, and, you know, it's that kind of stuff and then you're then you're then you've got a you've got a degree of command of your subject um you know you you kind of know where the line you know what the the landmines are that you don't step on you know here you can get stuff done and initiated but i mean housing is a good one which 
whatever I did in 2012 to 13, of course, for most for the most part, would not show up until 2013, 14, mm -hmm. 15, you know. And that I think is the frustration with it. And I understand the industry because they feel that the you know, new person comes in, they go in, they have a very nice meeting. It's all looking tickety-boo, person seems to be there, we're getting along, and then suddenly, we, you know, uh, stop, repeat the yeah. exercise. And that is intensely frustrating, and I don't blame them for that. But remember that housing particularly is affected, as we know all too well this week, uh, by what the Chancellor does, by what number 10's priorities are, by what the Secretary of State thinks, and in some ways by, for example, um, what Bayes, the business department's doing in terms of the construction regulations. So just focusing on the housing minister is a little bit narrow. I mean, it's a shorthand for mm. saying, you know, do these people know what they're doing? Also, I think it's interesting. Um, uh, there's very rarely actually one minister dealing with housing. So and ha housing and planning. So when I was minister, uh, I was housing. Um, there was a separate minister dealing with planning. Part so of you, you were housing and local government, is that right? That so I was brief? I was housing local growth. Local um, growth. Growth. Was, well, there you go. Very topical. See, well, I did you all fit the, right into the current law. Absolutely. Well, I and I set up the local enterprise partnerships in 2010-12 and wound down the nine uh, RDAs. Um, and then that agenda followed across into when I moved out of the business department into housing. Um, we were then I then had the um, high streets initiative, which mm -hmm. was already underway, put in, in my portfolio as well, uh, which was a challenge in a number of ways. You know, so and somebody else was and I, I think I, I, I kept homelessness because I thought that was an important issue. But mm. today, for example, Andrew Stevenson is the minister dealing with homelessness, whereas Lee Rowley is the minister dealing with housing in the round. So strategy, delivery, planning. So there isn't just one minister. I think that's what I'm, what I'm, I'm driving myself towards saying, which is and we should be a little care, careful about just assuming that's the only thing. Yeah. Do you think is it is it fair to say that um, the role of the housing minister then when you talked about uh, when you were in business and um, mm. Ken Clark handing things over to your intro when it's time for delivery? Is that kind of that sort of ministerial post all about delivery or is it partly about sort of shaping the policy as well? Or where, well, think, where's the focus? OK, so um, cabinet brings together the secretaries of state and then the the layer below that is minister of state. Uh, and I often feel, and again, I was a Minister of State, so I would say this, wouldn't I? But if you've got, if the government has got 15, 20 rock solid, capable doers who are their Ministers of State across the departments, then the chances are you're going to get stuff done. Most governments can have four or five stars, but they need 15 or 20 Ministers of State who are not going to be stars, but most of them will be solid capable, get on and do the do the job, make it happen kind of people. Back to your bank managers. Yeah, absolutely. I, think I feel I feel I've been very unfair on your bank manager. Well it's all electronic now these days, isn't it? Absolutely. So like, you know, a notion of someone a notion of Mr. Mannering, uh, you know, as the bank manager, uh, has long gone. But that that thing of, of when you get a, a complete change of government, and even though this is this the same party in power, there has been a, a colossal change of personnel, hasn't there? So there's you know, the Secretary of State has changed changed twice. We've had that that yes. interim yeah. period as well. All the ministers have changed. Um, mm -hmm. There's there's none of that sort of those lasting points. And I completely understand why when I'm talking to people in, in the industry and they're 
they're just desperate by the fact that it's all changed. It's all shifted. They're finding it quite difficult to sort of find something to cling on to. Would your sort of advice there be, actually, it's not going to change that much. The things that are in place are in place. And your job as an industry is actually just to help that minister, help that secretary of state get up to speed. Yeah, I, I think the, the thing is, first of all, always keep an eye on the big picture of, the, of what the government's trying to deal with. What, what, what environment are they working in? So this government has got very little time. It's got a huge raft of uh, crises. It needs to show outcomes. So that's the big picture to remember. You're right that in truth, you know, the moving from Michael Gove to Greg Clark to now Simon Clark, Mm. yes, that's three people in the space of however many weeks. Um, But the reality is that an awful lot of the stuff that, for example, Greg Clark very successfully did, which was just make sure the stuff that was already happening actually got landed and got delivered. So the deal for Yorkshire and Humber, the, you know, uh, some of the planning changes, the announcements on um, the rental deal for the social housing sector. He saw his job very sensibly, as you would expect from Greg. Um, he, He made sure he got stuff done. Uh, and it's all about delivery. Now, Simon Clark, clearly he's got a new administration. He needs to make sure number 10 are happy with where he's at. But they're pretty much, you know, he wouldn't have been chosen if he wasn't in sync. And therefore, what he's got to do is to make sure that what's currently agreed is still going to fit with where they are. Uh, one issue to bear in mind is the legislative program. So at Westminster, there is a question as to whether or not they will... Um, they will be able to do all the legislation that was previously planned. That'll be driven by two things. It'll be driven by what the new administration wants to do, and it'll be driven by how much capacity there is in Parliament to get it through. So if they think there's a long and complex bill, maybe the levelling up bill, you know, is all of that going to get through the sausage machine in the time we need? Because it's a tight machine. You can only get so much through, which forces government to pick A or B. And that's really the essence of how legislation is, is controlled when you're in opposition. You, the only device when you have fewer MPs in the government is time. So I think a really important, um, I am sounding like a time lord now, aren't I? <laughs> um, there we go. Uh, I just wish I had a TARDIS. Anyway, um, and then I could go back in time and, you know, whatever. Uh, I think I think that's important to bear in mind. I think I would say to, to you know listeners that um, do keep an eye on that. And it, part of it will be, be driven by what they think they want to do. Part of it will be what they can actually get through in the time they've got. But at the end of the day, the leader of the House and the chief whip uh, and the you know committees will say, well, you've got this list of 25 bills. Um, you know, you're going to have to drop five because there's no way we're going to get them all through. So which do you want to drop? And then there'll be a bun fight within and, you know, in, in, what it tends to happen, there will be a bit of, you know, the Home Office has got three bills, they'll be expected to drop one. Yeah. Uh, and so on. And there has been some concern, hasn't there, that there's, there's been talk of tinkering with the levelling up bill and adding other elements into it and stripping some parts out of it, but yeah. which which I, I know has concerned some in the industry who, who are saying, oh, come on, we just need the delivery of this, please. But actually, it, it seems that from what you're saying that, if there's talk about tinkering with it, that at least means it's still a live bill. If people are talking about changing it, it's not the one that they're going to ditch because they're running out of time. Correct. So yes. should we be more concerned about the ones that, that we're not hearing more about? Yes, absolutely. Yes, Silence is using indi- indication of something more fundamental that's about to happen. 
Um, so I think that's a, that is an entirely correct analysis. You you really ought to think about a career in politics. <laughs> maybe maybe next life. Maybe my next my next <laughs> incarnation. Indeed. But I, I I think the the main fundamental truth that we've we've pulled out of this discussion, Mark, is that there is a clear link somehow between Doctor Who and housing ministers. I think I think that's that's the one truth that all listeners can take away is I'm going to get complaints about this. You know, I'm I'm either going to get complaints from people saying that I've trivialized the right. great role of housing minister, oh, yes. or vice versa that I've I've besmirched. The good name of Doctor Who. I, maybe it's all about time. Um, <laughs> maybe that's the title of this week's thing. It's, it's about time. Yeah. And as it is all about time, and in fact, it's now time for us to say goodbye because that's all we've got time for. But we will be back and we'll be talking about the events as they happen and the policies as they go through, and more importantly, about delivery because that's the key. Um, so join me next time. And of course, Mark. Uh, for more of EG's office politics.